As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'd become friendly with those Australian, the great Australian players of that period. Chapel Brothers, Rod Marsh, Dennis Lilly, John Inverarity, Tom O, not that I see him, but, you know, people I... And I, but I think it's partly the further away I get from the time when they were trying to knock my head off, the more <laughs> friendly I feel. You're listening to the Lord's Cricket Podcast with me, Will Rowe. These are the stories from the home of cricket with the people that made them. For this episode, I'm joined by one of the finest thinkers the game has ever seen. Captaining England 31 times in a test career that spanned 39 matches, winning 18 of those in charge, drawing 9 and losing just 4. In 1985, he wrote a book, The Art of Captaincy, still considered one of the finest cricket books to this day, once described by Australian fast bowler Rodney Hogg as having a degree in people and acknowledged as the best captain I ever played under by teammate Ian Botham. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the Lord's Cricket Podcast, Mike Really, Mike, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Will. Lovely, well. lovely to be here. Nice to be recording at your home in, in London. Yeah. I, I look around and there's books everywhere. Well, this is my study. This is, I mean, this is where I see do my work as a psychotherapist, psychoanalyst. It's where I keep my analytic books and a few other books and my files and all sorts of stuff. That's very much your career these days. Um, but it's now sort of 35 years since you uh, you finished your cricket career back in 1983. Um, how do you look back at your career? <laughs> it's a big question. <laughs> it's a big question. I mean, I... It was. I suppose it was really in two parts. I mean, it's in the main part was only from 1971 to 82. I played one match in 83, but I retired in 82. That was when Middlesex were short in 83. Um, and so I had 11, no, 12 years as captain of Middlesex, those last 12 years. Before that, I was lucky enough to go up to Cambridge in 1961 
and play for the university for four years and then a few matches after that too and to play on and off, mostly off for Middlesex in the or Middlesex seconds in the holidays um, and in 64-65 I played a season and a half as a professional regular professional for Middlesex after Cambridge then I went back to Cambridge and hardly played for the next four or five years so there was a big gulf, really, between yeah. that first pleasurable introduction, privileged introduction through Cambridge to first-class cricket, um, including a tour to South Africa, the last tour that England went on to South Africa before tours were stopped, uh, and uh, including a season and a half of not great success for Middlesex. And then there was this 12 years of captain in Middlesex, which was fascinating, sometimes very difficult. I grew into it, it took a while. And then at the last um, of those last six years, I played for England in four or five of them. And that was also fascinating. Mike Brearley's born in 1942 in Harrow in North London, the eldest of three children. His father, Horace, is a Yorkshireman who plays once for Yorkshire before the Second World War and then briefly for Middlesex after the war. Mike's early memories are of life in post-war London. I was born in London and, um, first of all, in the middle of the war... So I think that probably wasn't so easy, though I can't, I can't really remember any of it. I was three when the war ended. But I know that my father was away for 18 months uh, in the Navy, some of that time spent in South Africa, actually, teaching ratings in the Navy, um, weather forecast, what are that called? Um, there's a word for it. Um, weather? Meteorology? No, Meteorologist? I don't know. Anyway, whatever it is. <laughs> And, and navigation. Right. And uh, so my mother had me on her own, was evacuated from London for some of the time. Her own mother died. Uh, I think she must have been having a really hard time. And life was not easy. And I remember immediately after the war, you know, rations, parcels that came from a family in South Africa that my father had got to know that was sort of either cheese or even, I think, chocolate sometimes, things that we couldn't get much of or hardly any of in London. Um, and I went to local primary school before I went to North Ealing Primary School before I went to City of London. But what I mostly remember is following my father, uh, who was a good, very good amateur cricketer mm. and a footballer, as he played for Brentham and at that time Middlesex seconds, and in 1949, twice for the first team, including at Bath against Somerset in Fred Titmus's first match for Middlesex. Right. So that when Fred Titmus played, we got him he, uh, to come and play for us at the age of 49 when he came for a, a cup of coffee and a, and a pipe smoke in the dressing room before the match against Surrey, my last match at Lords for Middlesex. Um, we looked at the pitch and it was going to turn and Clive Radley said, why don't we get Fred to play? And so he found him some kit, told him he was playing. And he got three, he got four wickets in the match, three of right. them in the final innings. We beat Surrey, we won the championship. So Fred could say, I saw the father in and the son out. <laughs> I've heard that story. It's a wonderful story. It's a nice story. He was 16 in 1949, you see, when my father played his first yeah. of his two matches. And your father was from Yorkshire, from yes. Heckmondwike? Heckmondwike. Yeah. Well, he was, he was a fine 
sportsman and a cricketer. He, he he played for Yorkshire Seconds for three years when they were the best team in the country, and he played once for their first team, oddly enough, against Middlesex. He played with mm. Hutton, Sutcliffe, Bowes, Verity, against a Middlesex team that had Edrich, Compton, Walter Robbins, Tuppy Smith, Tup, Tup, Tuppy Smith, Tuppy Owen Smith, leg spinner, another leg spinner, I can't remember who it was. Anyway, he played in that match. Um, was that something that he kind of um, passed on to you, do you think? As a, as a young boy, did you feel a, a, a pressure to go into cricket? Did he push you that way, or was it more, was it just natural? Did you just follow it yourself? I just followed it myself. I loved it. Uh, when I was nine, my mother said to me, if you go on like this, you'll do nothing but play cricket and football all your life. When I was six, as I put in my book uh, um, on cricket... Uh, I asked Father Christmas for a whole set of football gear, a football, a football shirt, football shorts, football boots, and a football goalie's cap. I don't believe I got all of them. But so football and cricket, and then cricket later, were passions. I could hardly get enough of them. In his teens, Mike goes to the City of London Boys' School, where his father's a teacher. He shines as a cricketer, but also academically. In 1956, Mike goes to watch England-Australia in the Ashes at Lords and remembers an unlikely hero. All I can remember, actually, is that it rained and that I went to a bookshop and for a shilling, which is now 5p, I bought a little book which had all the Ashes scores in since the first test. So I knew these names like Bannerman and Spofforth and Grace and Ranjit Singhji and so on. Amazing. So, but I uh, I also went to Lords. My mother took me, I think, during a half-term, summer half-term, to see, um, I think it was Hampshire playing, and I think I also saw David Shepherd play at Lords, and I saw Compton bat against Worcestershire. And I saw the person who, the player who was my hero, was Jack Robertson, and bat at Lords as well. And he was an opening batsman. He was an opening batsman. Interesting that at the age of seven, in 1949, he became my hero rather than Edrich or Compton, or possibly Len Hutton from my father's previous affiliations. Um, but it was it was Jack Robertson, who was obviously a less great player, a less flamboyant player, but a very good player too. And it ended up we had the same first-class average over our careers, Jack Robertson and I, which is odd. Nice. He also scored 331 in a day in 1949 at Worcester for Middlesex, and that seemed a heroic act to me. Which you would later follow for for the MCC in, in Pakistan. You scored 312 in a I day. I did, it, I did. Yeah. That's true. We, might, we should talk a bit about that. No, we shouldn't. We should <laughs> and um, were you one of two children growing up? Did you have three? A younger, I had two I, younger sisters. Okay. Yeah. And what did they do? Well, what you mean later on? Well, yeah, just generally. Well, uh, they both had families. Yeah. Uh, one of them worked for the Africa Service, and later for Haringey Council, procuring. Um, finding ways of spending money to underprivileged schools. And she also worked on um, schemes and policies for housing estates and social housing. Um, and she later had a, a pitch in a market in Shoreditch or somewhere. Um, my oldest, that's my younger sister, my older sister uh, was a bit of a dancer and she did some professional dancing for a while. She did a degree in, in physi physiology, no, in um, 
psychology and it wasn't physical training, but it was some word like that. Yeah. So it was a combination of the mind and the body, and and she um, she became an Alexander teacher and a teacher. Oh, lovely. So it sort yeah. of followed in your father's footsteps. Yes, so, more yeah. or less, she did. It, it, it sounds to me it was a very intellectual household. Was, was was that what it was like growing up? Or I wouldn't use the word intellectual, though yeah. my father liked arguments and discussion and yeah. politics and sometimes music and the theatre and so on. And uh, But he had, he'd come up from a family. His father was an engine fitter in the mills in the north of England, obviously a skilled man. Uh, but they had very little money, and he was the eighth of eight children, was able to stay on at school and therefore go to university mm. because by that time the oldest siblings were bringing money into the house. All so, the others left school at 15. So I wouldn't call him an intellectual. He was a mathematician. He was yeah. interested in maths. He loved maths. Uh, and he, he became very fond of music too, and he sang in the school choir. He was a teacher as well at City of London, and he loved um, sport. Um, yeah. So he was interested in a lot of things. And then you went off to Cambridge. Um, you did, it was, is it classics and moral sciences? Yes, yeah, so I did classics for two years and changed subjects to moral sciences, which is philosophy. Lovely. And then at this point, your cricket career, you were a, you were a blue there. So mm-hmm. I think you captained for a couple of years there. Yes, the last two years I captained. So cricket and it was sort of cricket and um, academia were going side by side, which says. Uh, Almost seems like the story of your life to a degree. Yes, yeah, yeah. and and in fact, after Cambridge, I w- couldn't decide what to do. And there were three possibilities. One was to stay at Cambridge and do or start doing a PhD, which is what I eventually did. Though I didn't finish it, and then I taught philosophy for three years at Newcastle University. Um, the second was to go into the civil service, and the third was to be a professional cricketer. <laughs> and I didn't know which to do. And as I say, I, I took the first of those options, and only later when I decided I wasn't really an academic and I was invited to Captain Middlesex, I then came back and had those 12 years for Middlesex. But in those, in that from 1960 to 70, as a, as a young man in your early 20s, you actually went out to, to California to be a research assistant? One year was in California, yeah. uh, though it was interrupted in the middle of the year by going to Pakistan on that under-25 tour, yeah. captaining the MCC under-25s, which was a pretty ex- exciting experience for me. And, and that was a tour when I, I did well with the bat. And uh, we had a good team. We had uh, Underwood, Knott, Pocock, Fletcher, um, Richard Hutton, Jeff Arnold, yeah. David Brown. I mean, very. it was a very good team. How did you keep those things going? It's it's amazing to think. You one moment you're in whereabouts in California were you? It was just south of Los Angeles. So you're out there as a, yeah. I think it was philosophy research yes, assistant, that's and, right, that's right. and then you're going over to Pakistan to captain an under twenty five side. It's uh, quite well, a life. <laughs> it was quite. It is. It's been quite a life. I'm very fortunate to have had both. I mean, I, I didn't know how to prioritize them for a while, and I thought I'd finish my cricket career when I went off to do this PhD and then to California, as you say, and then to Newcastle. But luckily it all, you know, it sort of came around and it was a bit of a chance, I suppose. One of my friends thought I was taking a foolish risk to go back into cricket with no guarantee of anything in 1971. Well, if it was a foolish risk, it was certainly one that paid off. 
Mike embarks on one of the finest captaincy careers the game has ever seen, first with his home county and then with England. In 1971, without a county title since 1947, the Middlesex board take a punt and offer a 29-year-old philosophy lecturer the captaincy job. Five years later, Mike wins the first of four county championships for Middlesex. So how did it all come about? And was it an easy transition? In 1965, Middlesex had their first professional captain. It was Fred Titmus, who captained mm. for three years, followed by Peter Parfit, who captained for two years. And all that time, John Murray, the wicketkeeper, was vice-captain. So I think there were mixed feelings about me coming in as a sort of quasi-old amateur, though I was very clear I was as much a professional as them. But someone from university from outside, it sounded a bit like the old days yeah. of an amateur captain. I wasn't one, but that's what it felt like. And I was a bit raw. I hadn't any anything like the experience or indeed the skill of those players um, plus John Price, plus Eric Russell, really the big five at the time. There was a somewhat hierarchical atmosphere in the dressing room. You, you, you didn't give an opinion too freely if you were a young player, um, which I was not in favour of. And um, someone had the bright idea. I don't know who it was really on the committee uh, or the non-bright idea, whichever it was. And I was invited... And I was stimulated by the idea. It, I thought I'd be really it would keep me alert and alive and fully involved in the game all the time, which I did. I did like the idea of captaincy. I liked the idea of being able to do things the way I wanted to do them, though I was also a bit nervous about the reception I might get. And I don't think I found it as easy to captain the senior players as the younger players. I mean, you had a phenomenal record as captain of Middlesex. Um, it was four county titles, one shared with Kent, two Gillette trophies. I mean, you, you did extremely well. How You touched on it just there, but how would you sum up your captaincy style? Um, I think I liked... I certainly believed in getting the opinions of everyone and getting everyone thinking about the game. And I think sometimes I succeeded in that. I liked a dressing room that was full of ideas, where all 11 players or 16 on the staff or whatever it was would think about the game not only from their own personal skill point of view, but from the whole team's point of view. And there's a couple of stories that are told me independently and separately, and I didn't remember them, by Mike Gatting and by Simon Hughes, who were both young players in the last years of my playing career, who said that in their early matches, I asked them their opinion in the field. Mm. And they were sort of flabbergasted and a bit overwhelmed and a bit embarrassed and didn't have much to say. And I said, well, I'll expect to have some ideas from you next time. <laughs> but that, that was something I believed in. Now, I don't, I don't suppose I always lived up to it and sometimes I'd be uh, irritable and tell people what to do or get angry or not listen, you know. But uh, that was the idea. And I, uh, so I think a consultative style of leadership, but with the uh, best, I could take a decision and stand by it myself, because I don't think you can have a whole, you, you do need someone in charge, and someone who's willing to take a decision and take a risk and do something, and tell people what to do. So it's that interesting mix. I mean, I think a bit like being a parent of consulting, listening, and also occasionally telling or being firm. 
Yeah, because reading some of Simon Hughes's uh, autobiography, you you certainly had your moments where you let the dressing room know exactly what you thought, and he he mentions that he also said you allowed players to be individuals, which I think is what you're referring to in asking them their opinion. But yes, I mean the the, the dressing room that Hughes describes sounds. Almost decidedly rogue at times, with John Embury playing cards, you and Phil Edmonds arguing. It, it, it sounds like a, a wonderful kind of epoch or moment in yes. cricketing history. What was it? I think that might be so in a, in a certain way, or at least a sort of s- symbolic. I mean, in the first place, there were people who'd left school at 14, Fred Titmus, John Murray, learnt sport and cricket and football and so on at, at boys' clubs, um, who had been brought up the hard school, become professionals on the ground staff, especially John Murray, sweeping the stands, selling scorecards, allowed in the nets once a week, bowling to members, you know, some of them hopeless at cricket, you know. It was a hard school. Um, And then there were um, privileged people. I mean, in a sense, I was privileged because I went to Cambridge and, uh, you know, played against Surrey and Yorkshire in my first two matches and so on. But I don't think of myself as socially privileged. Mm. Um, as I've said. But there were, and there were several from the West Indies, Wayne Daniel, Roland Butcher, Harry Latchman, um, Wilf Slack, uh, Norman Cowens. Um, There was another uh, quick bowler late in my career whose name just escapes me for some reason, but Williams was his first name. Anyway. Yeah. So there was a whole range, social range, racial range, uh, probably religious range, I don't know. But, um, and and it, was, it was a sort of um, s- symbolic group of British society at the time, class-wise and racial-wise. And um, it was lively, yeah. as you say, and sometimes difficult. Sometimes the arguments got a bit bitter, Mm. or the resentment got strong. But on the whole, there was enough good feeling and and there were some very good people. I mean, a lot of those people were good people, but some of them were more rebarbative, argumentative and so on than others. There was someone like Clive Radley or Mike Smith who were very loyal members of the team and loyal to me. And they would both give me advice and uh, I would discuss things with them and they were very fair-minded, and if they gave me a piece of advice and I didn't take it and we were in a worse mess an hour later, they would still give me advice an hour later or a day later. So there were people who helped the whole situation, there were people who were provocative, as in a family, actually. And I've always thought that the best teams are not po-faced, over-disciplined. Of course, discipline's important, self-discipline in particular, but so is spontaneity, so is liveliness, so are ideas. And in terms of the kind of the fun that you guys had, there's a yeah. there's a story which is actually I'd, I'd love to ask you if this is true. Um, that Neil Priscott, the former MCC head of media, told me is there's one time you were playing Surrey at the Oval, and Sylvester Clark, the West Indies bowler, was quite quick, and mm, there was very quick. there's rumours that his quicker effort ball was sort of chucked. And that you paid someone to essentially be a stooge and stand there with a big anorak on and a clipboard and a pair of binoculars 
and you let a rumor around the ground that there was um, there was an official in the ground who was checking on the legitimacy of people's bowling actions, and that that day uh, Clark bowled within himself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I honestly can't remember that, but I do remember something of the kind. I'm not sure whether it was a, an actual story or a, an extended joke, you know. Yeah. It might have been the latter, but it's a nice idea anyway. I quite <laughs> like it. I mean, it sounds like something you would have done. I mean, because you're reading up your captaincy. I mean, you actually changed the game with your captaincy. You created... Um, there's a game against Surrey in 1976 when Middlesex going to win their first title. 77, I think. Or, or 77, sorry, when you were chasing Kent. Yes. And it was against Surrey, and yes. you declared at nought for nought after one ball because uh, Mike Selby thought, well, this is green, I can yeah. bowl them out on the final day. Yes, I mean, the score, after two days of almost continuous rain, the score was Surrey 8 for 1. Mm. And in those days, if you if the match had started, you didn't play... If, if the match hadn't started, it would have been a one-innings match on the last day. But a match had started, so it was a two-innings match. So we went out and bowled, and it was green, and we had um, what, uh, Mike Selvey, Wayne Daniel, probably, I don't know who the third seamer was, but probably a good bowler, uh, and we bowled them out for 49, I think it was. And just before, when they were about 47 for eight, I went up to Donald Carr in the dressing room, I went off the field and said, are we allowed to forfeit our innings? And he sort of hummed and hard, and he said, well, I don't know if that's ever happened before. I'm not sure you were allowed to. And uh, so we had to face one ball, which took up 10 minutes, 11 minutes of the of the day. So we declared it naught for naught. Did you go on the balcony and do that? Come in, lads. <laughs> I, think, I think they managed to remember. <laughs> and, and, um, and then we bowled them out for 87. So they, we needed 137 to win. Jeff Arnold, their best bowler, went over on his ankle early on so so they were reduced and we won by nine wickets and uh, with an hour to spare I think which was fantastic so yes it did change the rules because from then on people were allowed to forfeit an innings if they chose that's amazing yeah. and then also I think you and Phil Edmund devised a plan to put a the helmet five yeah. penalty runs at, at mid-wicket against York short mid-wicket against Close, Yorkshire against Yorkshire they were batting out for a draw again as we thought on the third <laughs> afternoon nothing much was happening and um, solemn and solemn so Philip and I in those days you could there was no rule that said the helmet that wasn't being used on the field had to be behind the wicketkeeper mm. So we we thought the auctionman, being a bit mean, might uh, play a full shot in order to get five penalty runs, you see. So we put it at short mid-on, short mid-wicket. We made a great play of moving the position of the helmet. <laughs> asking, also like a couple of yards each time. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> asking the helmet if it had a helmet on in case it got hit. <laughs> and, and, you know, there, there was no humour on the other side. And, and that also changed the laws because after that year... Um, they they said the helmet could only be behind the wicketkeeper. <laughs> so it didn't go very far. And 1976, that was the the, the first title you won. Um, it was at the Oval. and Yes, we got actually the, won it there. Yeah, Clive Radley got the batting point that was needed. Yes, that's right. Mike Selvey tells a funny story of, um, I think him and Alan Jones has actually gone for a couple of pints. Cause they, they, yeah. yeah, they say, oh, oh, this is in the bag. And then yeah. a few wickets tumbled and then... Uh, Mike Selby went out and batted and just swished his way to 29, so it's the best he'd ever batted. Um, again, just reading up on that, it, it, it's it's a different era. I don't think you'd have um, no. Anderson and Broad going for pints now during a county game. I don't think you would. <laughs> I'm not sure I knew it. 
<laughs> I've let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> would you it's have allowed fairly, it? <laughs> a fairly safe bag. I doubt if I would, actually. Yeah. Well, there you go. But uh, still, there was. It was a different era, and people. And were, I mean, to some extent, you see, there was some informality. There were no coaches around. I mean, the mm. one we did Middlesex did have a coach, but he spent most of his time with the second eleven. And, you know, people came from the second eleven looking like good cricketers, which yeah. was his job, really, or a lot of his job. But he didn't do a great deal of coaching with the first team, Don Bennett, that was. So we went around, 12 of us, you know, in cars. Occasionally we had to find a hotel if the Gillette Cup match went over to a second day. We had to drive around Kent one time trying to find a hotel. Bank holiday weekend in August, there weren't any rooms. So, you know, it was very informal and, uh, and, and a lot of fun. Um, of course, it was a serious matter, but it was it was a lot of fun. The summer of nineteen seventy seven. It was a fantastic summer for you. Um, you won the Ashes. You won the Gillette Cup with Middlesex at Lords. Um, you came third in the John Player League, and you shared the county championship with yes, Kent. Yes, um, and you were one of five Wisden cricketers of the year. Uh, was that your best summer of cricket? Well, I have to put next to it 1981, <laughs> which people tend to remember, and I do too, and I'm asked to write about it about every five years, you know, as if mm. there's a new story to be told. <laughs> uh, I think people really want, you know, like children, small children with bedtime stories, they want the same story told again, probably in the same words. Yeah. But anyway, I think 77, yes. 76 was special, partly because Wayne Daniel wasn't playing for us then. So we had... You know, no great star bowlers. And Mike Selvey was a very fine bowler. Alan Jones was a very good bowler we got from Somerset, uh, where he'd driven Brian close crazy, by the way, having left Sussex the time before that. But we got it because it was a hot summer and we had three spinners. We had, well, four at times. I think we had Philip Edmonds, John Embury, Fred Titmus, and Norman Featherston. And we scored enough runs on these dry wickets and we bowled people out. And the sun was was the really hot summer. So we were lucky, but we also stormed through in a way. Yeah. And it was a wonderful summer. So that was a very exciting first time. And then 77 and then 81, yeah. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. In 1977, having played eight tests for England, Mike's offered the captaincy. Tony Gregg sacked effectively over his involvement in Kerry Packer's World Series, although he remains in the side. It's an Ashes summer and the first tests at Lords. So how does Mike feel coming to the home of cricket to captain England for the first time? Well, I tell a story and I think it's in... I don't know, I think it's in The Art of Captaincy, or is it The Ashes Return? The Return of the Ashes, which is about that summer, the series, of um, the night before my first day at Lords, And I think there were two dreams, but one of them was about a small creature coming out of a shell and poking its nose outside. And the other was something about a creature, I think also in the same shell, coming out on the stage and not, not wanting to be there. I can't remember the detail just now. But I think that shows that I was pretty anxious about yeah. it, uh, anxious about being seen on this big stage, uh, uh, wanting to some extent to hide in my shell. But I also liked it a lot and I was excited, of course. Uh, a bit tense. I don't think I ever got properly relaxed in test cricket, at least with regard to batting. But Tony Gregg played and was a great help. Alan Knott played. Um, Derek Underwood played. Um, Dennis Amos played, all of them going to Packer late, later in that year. And you, but you accepted them as Packer players. You decided that that's fine, they can play was, my side. I was convinced of it. I, I had some sympathy with the Packer uh, movement or the Packer thing. I didn't like the idea of an impresario running the cricket and owning the players. But I did like the idea of innovation. I liked the idea that more of the money that was made by cricket would come to the players. Because I think players were not well paid at all in the, at that time. So I had some sympathy. I didn't want to join. I, I was invited to join if I got the whole England team to play, because I think Pack would have liked that. But I was not, had no interest in doing that at all. In fact, I was approached after we, just after we won the Ashes at Headingley that summer, mm. 1977, with that invitation. But I had no interest in that. Going back to that that Lord's Test match, um, it was a kind of cold and grey game. Yes, it, was. it, it wasn't a particularly nice week, but obviously very special for you. Yes. You won the toss, you chose to bat. Uh, England made 216, Bob Woolmer top scoring with 79 and Derek Randall chipping in with 53. Uh, Jeff Thompson taking four wickets. Um, in reply, Australia posted 296. And then it, then it unfolds into quite an interesting game because... Batting second, Woolmer hits 120 and you chip in with 49. Um, and then at one point it looks like you're going to bowl them out, but they kind of hang on yeah. for the draw. Yeah. Were uh, they six wickets down in the end or I, five? Six or f- Yes, they mm-hmm. finished 71 for five in yes, the end. For five. So you almost got them. And there, and there was a key moment in the game um, where Derek Underwood, there was a, a return chance off uh, Greg Chappell when he was only on 13 in their first innings. Yeah. So it's, things can hang on those moments. They can, and they do. Yeah. And Greg Chappell was one of the best players I ever played against. He was an extremely elegant batsman, 
beautiful player, a good thinker about the game too, as was his brother Ian. Uh, so I, I'm, you know, and I began, uh, you know, friendship really. I'm not. I mean, I wouldn't call us friends then, but I've become friendly with those Australian, the great Australian players of that period: Chapel Brothers, Rod Marsh, Dennis Lilly, John Inverarity, Rodney Hogg to some extent, uh, Tomo. Not that I see him, but you know, people I. And I, but I think it's partly the further away I get from the time when they were trying to knock my head off, the more <laughs> friendly I feel. But no, no, there were, and there was a, a lot to be said for the way they played cricket. And uh, you know, there was, the Ashes are obviously a very hyped up thing, and you, you go into something that's full of tradition and full of stories and media attention and focus, and you know, everything is scrutinised. Even then, I mean, I would say. Yeah, I wanted to ask you on that. Do you, did you feel the Ashes when you when you played an Ashes series? Because in modern sport, everything is hyped on the the TV broadcasters. They make you know things like the Ryder Cup and such like. But it seems from looking at the history, the Ashes has always been very fiercely com- yeah. competed for. It has been. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. And Australians, I think, don't know how to play cricket in any other way than hard and tough. Usually fair, occasionally, as we know, um, like other people, um, they've gone a bit over the top. But, um, um, you know, basically they play it according to their their ideas of what's right. Usually it doesn't have anything to do with walking, but on the other hand, if you're given out, you get off the field, you don't make a show of it. Mm. And in a way there's something quite honourable about that. I mean, I tell a story about... Ian Chappell, it wasn't a match I was playing in, but a test match at Melbourne, and twice in the match he was given out, caught at the wicket, off his thigh pad, down the leg side by Alan Knott. Once off Chris Ald and he got 60, and once off Tony Gregg and he got 50, or the other way around. And um, in each on each occasion he got off the field and no one in the, f- in the crowd knew that he'd been wrongly dismissed. Now that takes some doing. Most people would look around, drag their bat raise their eyes to heaven and gradually get sort of <laughs> dragged off the field. So that's something very straight yeah. about them. Mike and his England side win the Ashes comfortably that summer. 3-0 in the end. It's a contest he never loses. Winning down under 5-1 in the winter of 78 and 79, and then most famously in 1981 when recalled to the side. But the Packet affair depletes the Aussies in 1977. Dennis Lilly, Ian Chappell and Ross Edwards aren't part of the side and it undoubtedly makes the contest uneven. But one side who were not depleted during this era were the West Indies. In 1979, England are in the World Cup final at Lords. They face the West Indies, who bat first and post 286 for nine, thanks to a brilliant 138 not out from Viv Richards. Mike picks up the story ahead of the game. We had a problem, which was whether to play five first-line bowlers or an extra batsman who could, with a bit of people who could chip in, like Graham Gooch, Geoffrey Boycott. And we had one, the, the sixth or seventh, he might even have been seventh batsman, was Derek Randall at that time. And he'd more or less won us the previous match, the semi-final. He'd played very well in it against New Zealand. And it did seem the best way. And But in fact, 
we it, it, it was a shame because we got West Indies 99 for four, probably off about 20-odd overs, 23 or four overs, but we hadn't got Viv Richards out, and, and Le- uh, Collis King came in at number six. And we really couldn't... We only had three front-line quickish bowlers and then Phil Edmonds and then these bits and pieces bowlers. And so we really couldn't keep the pressure up on them. If we had had a fourth seamer, we would, you know, we might have done something remarkable and bowled them out for 150 or 180. And the last ball coming up, last ball of the innings, and he does the game! It's another six, pulled up, off stunt there. Richards finishes with 138 not out, with three sixes, 11 falls, and West Indies have scored 286 for nine off their 60 overs. So England need to score at 4.85 runs per over, a colossal task spread over 60 overs against this West Indies attack. In those days, a huge score, 290, no fielding restrictions, yeah. and with uh, four great fast bowlers. Uh, now, then, of course, there was the other thing that happened, which is that we opened with Jeff Boycott and me. It may have been itself a mistake, but we, we we didn't do too badly until T after 25 overs with 35 overs left. The score was 75 for no wicket. And I think that if it had been 90 for no wicket, it would have been pretty good. I mean, to have all those wickets in hand. And I thought at tea time, uh, we should, Boycott and I, especially I, should really have a go and, if necessary, get out quickly and get our attacking batsmen in, because there was Gooch, Gower, Botham... Botham was, yeah. Uh, Randall, Larkins. I mean, I think they all were playing. And uh, that was where I made a mistake. And that was uh, something I feel very bad about still to this day. Really? Yeah. Even now? Yes, I do. I mean, I think it was... We hadn't done badly till tea, put it that way. Roberts, from the pavilion end. And that's a fine four by Braley. A fine off drive, four all the way. Beautiful stroke. England are only 79 for naught. But afterwards, try as they may, Braley and Boycott can't score fast enough off the innocent looking slow bowling of Richards. And also how they feel on the English balcony. Frustrated stroke players eager to go out into the middle and get on with it. I think the chances of anyone getting 290 in, in 60 overs in those days against that attack, which was Roberts holding Croft Garner and, and Croft, Croft, yeah, plus Richards, Gomes. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the West, uh, it, Pakistan, who had wonderful batting side, had lost in the semi-final by quite a few runs to that sort of score. So I think the odds were it wasn't going to happen very often, mm. maybe one in ten. But we had given ourselves just a, an outside chance at tea time, and then I think we blew it. It's it's interesting that you you still feel bad about it yeah. even now, yeah. um, because I guess with uh, history, we'll kind of look at that game and think, well, the West Indies they were always going to win. But as you say, hmm. it's not that simple because there are moments, even yeah. against the great sides, yes. where if you get it right, exactly. it can work. Actually, I've always thought that that. When you're playing against sides that are more powerful than yourself, yourselves, you have to seize moments and you have to make the best of small, whatever things you can get. And I admire someone, again, like um, Ian Chappell, who would turn a dot ball into a single or a single into a two 
or would irritate the opposition and make them bowl something they didn't want to bowl, or would, you know, use his um, medium pace bowlers shrewdly um, with appropriate defensive fields, you know. Uh, and it's a sort of canniness, making the best of not a bad job, but a, a job where you're up against the odds. Yeah. Um, and I think that's an important part of life and sport. In in, in terms of lords on that day, what was the ground like? Because I've watched some old footage back and it it looked like quite a Caribbean crowd, like a bit of a carnival there. There was guys coming on the pitch, celebrating. Yeah. Viv must have been... Was there part of you as a player to just sort of put your hands on your hips and think... How do we get him out? He's so good. Yes, that's going to be it. It's going to be his hundred. A fine hundred for Richards of only 130 balls. With only seven overs to go, Richards attacks everything. That's another thing, I think, is that when there's someone who's so good and so powerful, you have to keep in mind that you can get him out. And you have to expect to get him out. You have to have ideas of how you might get him out. A bit later on, I realised that one idea I had was, um, at least once he's got in, you know, was to bowl a bit wider the off stump and make him either hit well across the line or um, chase the ball outside the off stump. Now, it's a very basic, ordinary sort of ploy. It's not. I'm not the first person to have thought it. <laughs> uh, but at least you're saying, all right, we'll try that. And maybe every now and again bowl a straight Yorker and hope that he's playing across it a bit, which he sometimes did in the LBW or bowled. Um, and you might try him early on with the odd bouncer because he would go for the hook. And of course, he's a great hooker, but, you know, he might give you a chance like that. Um, so Viv was a great player. I think he's the bowler, the batsman whom, whom bowlers that I knew most feared to bowl at because he could, he had that arrogance on the pitch, pride, tremendous presence he had it the rest of his life I wrote a piece in the book on cricket about um, meeting him in the commentary box in Dubai of all places when West Indies were playing Pakistan in uh, 2016 and um, I felt that same slight awe in his presence (laughs) as I had felt on the field and he was a he was a the most powerful demolishing player I played against really I mean both of them was Ian Botham was pretty close but he wasn't quite like Viv and he was tremendously uh, resilient and tough and ambitious for the team Um, and you know so yes we knew he was a great player and just to to finish on the podcast today we can't um, let you go as ever without talking about 1981 you've talked about the key figure briefly um, Ian Botham he came into your under your wings, so to speak, in uh, 1977. Um, Ian was the great hero of Headingley. He'd been sacked at Lords. Then you came back, age 39 or 40? 30, 30, 39. 39. Um, what kind of a player was Ian, and how did you feel coming into that dressing room with, let's be honest, quite a wounded man? Well, my very first reaction... I mean, before I got to Headingley, was just was a bit nervous about that side of it. Would he be welcoming to me? Though <clears throat> someone told me recently that he had announced that I should be the captain. So, but I can't remember knowing that. I possibly did, but I can't remember it. But as soon as we started, as soon as we met, 
the old humour, teasing, uh, uh, pleasantries, ambition, drive, friendliness came to the fore. And I knew it would be all right with him, you know, I mean, that wasn't going to be a problem. But as to in general, I mean, the general way of... I, I was lucky. First of all, he was... I was his first England captain. Secondly, he was at his best as a cricketer for those first five years, I would say, 77 to, say, 82. After that, he <clears throat> walked up and down the country raising millions for uh, children with leukaemia. Fantastic thing he did. And uh, But it was wear and tear on his body, and he didn't really look after himself in the way that someone like um, Hadley, Richard Hadley or maybe even Imran Khan probably did. Uh, he wasn't uh, an obsessional person. He was um, quite keen on the odd glass of beer in between <laughs> when he got a chance. Um, uh, and um, he was an effervescent. He was a team man totally. He was a brilliant hitter. I don't think he ever came, became quite a top-class one-to-five, three-to-four-five batsman. Uh, but a wonderful bowler in those first few years. Quick, swung it away, could bowl an in-swinger, uh, willing to try any number of bouncers, slow balls, yorkers, always attacking, always wanted more slips. So I knew that sometimes he had to be just sort of calmed down slightly, but not very often. And sometimes I had to give him his head. And as for batting, I uh, think I realised that Headingley, which was a poor batting bitch, that he was better off having a hit which he did to great effect, <clears throat> scoring uh, two hundred runs in the match. It was yeah, it was it was quite the story. And uh, R- Richie Benno once said that captaincy is you know ninety percent luck, ten percent skill. Do you feel there's truth in that? Yes, I'd put it more like fifty-fifty. But yes, I mean, there's a huge amount of luck. Obviously, a good captain will make a difference to a team for the better. Um, but that might be a, mo- a mediocre team that you make into a good team or, you know, a poor team that you make into a mediocre team. And you have to have a good team, to, obviously. And and there's luck in the timing. And how, which, when, when... I mean, those close matches in 1981 were full of moments of luck. Yeah. And we haven't mentioned Willis either. Bob Willis Bob was, Willis, you know... Almost out <laughs> of Test cricket. Not very fit. I mean, I mean, he had chest infections. He wasn't bowling particularly well. He was bowling a lot of no balls. And then in that second innings at Headingley, I think it was um, Graham Gooch or Mike Gatting who said to him, just run in and bowl as fast and straight as you can. Forget about the no balls. And he bowled fast and straight. Took eight for 43. Resuscitated his career. Won the match. And... Uh, Became a hero. You know, uh, he he was a uh, he was quite a figure in in England's cricket from seventy one or onwards in Australia. Quite a figure. Do you and Bob ever catch up still these days? Yes, uh, he came to my book launch. He, I, uh, been to a party that he gave uh, uh, when he got married a second time. He we don't see each other often, but I always like to see him. Do you ever chat about 81, or is that just No, the... not really. I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> no, 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 I don't think so. He might, I mean, he, 
catchphrases from that time he might come up with. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Your test average when you were a, when you played test cricket was quite low for a batsman, um, and you were criticised for it. And there was times where people said you shouldn't be in the team. How did you have the sort of mental fortitude to to battle through that? With difficulty, usually. Well, on the t- there were two occasions where I thought they might be right. These these critics or these observers, not necessarily critical, it was their opinion. And they were, you know, I thought they might well be right, but. Each time I was um, I was given some degree of confidence by the conviction that most of the players, if not all, wanted me to be there. And the, and in Australia, one time the manager, Doug Insull, also. So that made a great deal of difference to me. Um, and otherwise, it was a matter of actually sometimes gritting one's teeth and going out there and doing the job. Um, I don't mean you put on a show, but to some extent you had to do that. But also just the sheer competition and having these fine cricketers to play with and against um, did energise me. You know, to get the best, try and get the best out of, try and tactically do the best things we could out of Botham, Willis, Old, Lever, Hendrick, Embury, Edmonds... I think of the bowlers first, but also the batsmen, Boycott, Gatting, Gower, Peter Willey, Alan Knott, Bob Taylor. You know, they were a very fine group of people and players. And uh, I've probably forgotten someone, which would be a shame. But anyway, those were amongst them. And just how proud are you to sit here now to think that since the, since the war, you're still the England captain with the best win ratio? Well, that's a lot of luck too, and it was the Packer period. I didn't captain against the West Indies. Um, Railingworth was at least partly right when he said, best captain, I'd say luckiest. (laughs) (laughs) That's a typical Railingworth thing to say. And um, just to put you on the spot, uh, what's the one cricket moment uh, that you cherish the most from your career? Oh dear, I didn't know you were going to ask me that. Um... I suppose oh, winning county championship and some of those Ashes series, because there were three that we won uh, when I was captain, um, I think they were, I mean, I can't say all of them and all, but, but I think they were the best moments. They were team moments in the first place. So everyone felt you'd been through a lot together. You'd come out on top. It was a great feeling. might not happen again. Better enjoy it. <laughs> and we did. Well, Mike, really, thank you very much for your time today. It's, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Will. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Lord's Cricket Podcast, the stories from the home of cricket with the people that made them. That was the Mike Brearley story. Um, A massive thanks to Mike for taking time to record that podcast. As you heard, I just went to his house and sat in his study, surrounded by books everywhere. Um, But he really isn't that keen on that tag of being an intellectual. I think he, he, he he doesn't quite 
go for that? I mean, he's obviously academically very bright and he's a psychiatrist and that's what a lot of his work is now. But he probably has had years of, you know, people thinking maybe maybe he's a bit of a snob. I don't know that kind of in that way that people that are extremely clever or thought to be extremely clever. Uh, a lot of people perceive them to look down on people. But he's not like that at all. He's really, he really is at anyone's level. Um, and that's what I really like about Mike Brearley. I've met him a few times over the years. And he's the type of guy that, you know, he's England's greatest captain ever, um, in my opinion. Michael Vaughan is certainly up there. But it's amazing to be in his company because, you know, when we stop recording the podcast, he'll ask me my opinions on the current England side and, and listen to them genuinely. Um, so, yeah, thanks thanks again to Mike Brilly for taking his time. It was, it was wonderful going down memory lane with him and also steering a little bit clear of the 1981 Ashes. As he said during that podcast... Um, it's a bit like a children's you know, bedtime story. We know the story. We know what happens. We know the, the Botham, the Willis and all that. But people just want to hear it again and again. But there's so many other stories, so many amazing little insights that um, Mike has. You know, the, the one which tickled me, I think, the most was moving the helmet around mid-wicket against Yorkshire and sort of teasing them and saying, you know, maybe the helmet needs a helmet and, you know, that kind of stuff. Just fantastic to listen to. Um, so, again, yeah... Very big thanks to Mike. Um, Also, as ever, big thanks to the ECB and the BBC for those commentary clips. It really brings it to life. Um, Please do get in touch with the show. Um, We're on Twitter, at Homer Cricket, that's the handle, or me personally, at WillRow2. You can also email the show, podcast at mcc.org.uk. It's always good to to hear what you have to say. Um, So thank you very much for that. Um, Next week's guest is Steve Kirby. Now, Kirby's never played for England, but his story and and life as a county cricketer is well worth a listen. Having been let go by Leicestershire before his first-class debut, he never made a debut for Leicestershire, he went to sell floors for a living, uh, but he never gives up on his cricket dream, and that really is part of who he is. Uh, he's a fiery character on the field, but a real pleasure off it. He has some great stories to tell and has had some real highs and lows at this great old ground of Lords. So that's next week's Lords Cricket Podcast with Steve Kirby. And once again, thanks for listening to this week's episode with Mike Brearley.